you know, I pray for you all the time, and I don't say that lightly, and I never take it lightly. I pray for those of you that are not yet followers of Jesus. You come to church, and that's a wonderful thing, but you have not yet given your life to Christ, and I pray a lot about that, and I believe, really, that it's only a matter of time before you give your life to Jesus, because I think that the more you hang around here and the more you hear about the love of God and the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus and this beautiful place that he's reserved for us in heaven, I think it's only a matter of time you're going to say, you know, what am I running from? Why don't I give my life to Jesus? And that will be a great, great day in your life and in the boats of heaven. I also pray for those of you that are already Christians that you would grow. You see, I believe it is in the heart of every follower of Jesus to want to grow, to want to mature in their faith. The Bible tells us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray for you that you would grow. And I pray in very specific areas about how that, that, how that, that growth would be manifested in your life. And yet I've been around long enough to know I've been a Christian since I was since I was 15 years of age. I started going to church when I was a small boy. I've been a pastor since my early 20s. And I've been around enough to know that even though it's in our heart to grow, there's sometimes that we hit impediments. There's sometimes we come up against roadblocks and, and our growth in God becomes stymied. And I want to talk to you today, and you already know because it's on the screen, one of the things that can be preventative of our spiritual growth, and that is when we're holding on to grudge, uh, a grudge when we have bitterness and resentment in our heart and how that, that just becomes so prohibitive of us moving forward and growing in the way that we really want to grow and in the way, quite actually, the way that God wants us to grow. I've been studying the life of Joseph for some time recently, and I've been studying it really slowly. You know, I'm, I'm always, you know, moving from this to that, this project to that project, this event to this event, and my life seems to be constant movement. But I'm just training myself more and more when I get into the scriptures to just slow down and take my time, take my time with God, take my time in the scriptures. And so I've just uh, very methodically have been reading through the story of Joseph in the latter part of Genesis. And I hope that maybe you would do that this week. It's a fascinating story. I admit it, I've read it many, many times before, but never quite as slowly and thoughtfully as I have probably in recent weeks. It's an amazing story how that this... Uh, this young man, this uh, son, this sibling, Joseph, how that, uh, you know, God has his hand upon his life. It's obvious as you read what ha happens, especially once he, he is a resident of Egypt. And, and you just look at how that, that God was going to bless his life and God had really given him dreams of how God was going to bless him. But how many know sometimes when God reveals to you something, sometimes you need to talk about it. And other times, God will reveal things to you, and, and you just need to keep your mouth shut. And Joseph couldn't do it. And so he comes out, and he's got a big family. He's got lots of brothers. He's got a big family. And he comes out to his brothers one day, and he's, you know, he's got this uh, finely ornamented uh, coat that his father had given to him. And it's like, you know, this is a coat like they don't have. And, and uh, he walks out, and he's like, how do you guys like my, my coat, this nice Hugo Boss coat that uh, my, my dad has uh, given to me? And I notice you, you guys don't have one, so apparently I'm special. I'm pretty special to dad. How many of you know you don't? Don't do that, that kind of thing. And, and then he starts talking about a dream he has. And one day they're out there together and he says, oh, by the way, brothers, I just thought I'd let you know that, that I had a dream and I believe God gave me the dream and uh, I thought I'd let you in on it. One day God revealed to me in a dream, there's coming the day when you're going to bow down to me. And they're like, oh my goodness, really? He's going to actually say that? 
Now, how many of you know, if you've ever read the story of Joseph, that actually happens once they come into Egypt because there's this great famine back in Canaan. And uh, his father, uh, you know, Israel, Jacob, who later becomes Israel's father, says to all the siblings, because now uh, Joseph is in Egypt, he's taken into captivity, and God just continues to promote him and raise him up till he's like the second most powerful person in, in all of Egypt. And so the father sends him because there has been this wisdom that God has granted to Joseph to provide, uh, you know, resources. You know, there had been the seven years of blessing in which God had given to Joseph another dream, you know, that he would interpret actually a, a dream of Pharaoh. And he says, here's what, you know, God's trying to show you that there's going to be seven years of blessing and seven years of prosperity. And then it's going to be seven years of famine that's going to follow afterwards. So we better store up the grain. And so they, that they had and God gave him wisdom, and, and he just keeps getting uh, elevated in responsibility. And so the brothers come, and it's an amazing scene where the brothers come, and they have no idea that Joseph is still alive. As far as they know, he's, he's been dead for many, many years. Uh, Jacob thinks that. All of the brothers think that. And so here they come to Egypt to buy grain, to take it back to Canaan so that their families would be able to eat, the kids and the parents and, their, and the grandkids and such. And so of all people, when they come to buy grain, guess who they have to buy grain from? It is just this brother that they have sold into slavery and into captivity. And what is amazing about that, of the 10 brothers, uh, eventually uh, Benjamin would come on the next trip, 11 of them. But on this trip, 10 of them would come and not a single one of them would recognize Joseph, but Joseph would recognize all of his brothers. Man, don't you imagine what that must have been like? Not even a single one of them just said, you know what? That guy right there, I know that Joseph has been out of our life a long time, but that guy sure does, he sure does look a lot like our younger brother Joseph, but it, they don't even realize. But Joseph knows who they are. And it's an amazing story. And, and it says that he spoke, when you read the story, he spoke uh, quite roughly to them. He starts accusing them, hey, you're saying that you've come here to buy grain, but I know why you're here. And he's just messing with their brain a little bit. I know why you're here. You're not here to buy grain. You are here to spy on the land. We're not spies. You, we're just telling you before God, you know, God knows our hearts. We're not here as spies. We've got a family. And Joseph starts asking about their family because he wants to know what's going on with his dad and his family back in Canaan. And he asked these questions. At one point, Joseph becomes so emotional that he has to excuse himself. And he goes into a back room and he just weeps. He bawls like a baby because he sees his brothers. Eventually, you know, it's a long story. Uh, but eventually what happens is Joseph reveals himself. And, and he says, hey, listen, I want you to know who I am. I am Joseph. And they're like, oh, no, this is going to go bad. This is going to go really, really bad because we're here wanting to buy food from the one guy that can sell us food or our families are going to start back where we came from. And the one guy who is in charge of this is the guy that we betrayed, the guy that we sold into slavery and captivity. And... Uh, Beautiful story, the way it plays out eventually, Joseph. And I read this not long ago, and I'd never really seen this portion before. I mean, I'd read it, but I'd never paid as much attention to it. How that it says that uh, Joseph invites them into this dinner. And then this is before he reveals himself now, before he says, hey, I'm your brother Joseph. He invites them 
into this dinner. And, you know, they, they're not holding their birth certificate or anything like that. But he has them seated chronologically by their ages from the oldest to the youngest. And can you imagine what that must have felt like when they just sort of look around and say, oh, my goodness, what is going on here? Later, all of the Israelites come into a land because Joseph sends for his family, and they come in caravans, and, and uh, they come, and they settle in a beautiful land there in Egypt, probably the best of the land in Egypt. Eventually, after this great reunion when Joseph sees his dad, and Jacob sees his son Joseph, and there's this incredible reunion. And then after a while, Jacob dies, and uh, the guys get together, and they're like, you know what? We're in big trouble with Joseph right now. He's only been good to us because dad is still alive. But now that dad is gone and we're in Egypt and surely he's going to retaliate. And I'm sure that, that Joseph, in the language, you check this out. I'm sure that Joseph still is holding a grudge because of what we've done. I love how it turns out they basically go and throw themselves on the mercy of Joseph and they said, we know what we've done was so bad. You know, the fact that we, you know, we were going to kill you and then we sold you and, you know, to this caravan of Ishmaelites and they, they sold you into Egyptian captivity and, and we did so wrong and it's bad. Everything that we did was bad and we're just asking for mercy. That's all we know to ask for because everything that we did to you, listen, friends, was so absolutely wrong and and, and we deserve for you to treat us cruelly. You can do whatever you want. You're just a really powerful guy in Egypt right now. And then Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, listen, you guys can relax. You can chill. I know, I know what you're saying. And I get it. And you most definitely did me wrong. But perhaps God allowed me to be the one who would be sent into Egypt so that I would be used by God to preserve your life and the life of your kids in your life. And it does, and Israel is preserved. Later they go out and they take over the land of Canaan again. And you know the rest of the story, but you just think, how in the world? I mean, it's one thing, how many of you know, it's one thing to be betrayed by, by a stranger, but to be betrayed by a family member. Can you imagine and so I want to talk to you for the next few moments about how do you release a grudge? How do you turn loose of a, of a grudge? And it's, and it's not easy to do so. Now, I must tell you that if God were to come to me and said, you know, Jeff, here's, here's what I'm going to permit you to do. I'm going to, I'm going to permit you to take a pair of scissors. And then what you can do is you can open up the Bible anywhere you want. And I'm going to limit you to about three or four sections. And you can just take those scissors and anything that's given you a lot of trouble and anything that you don't want to be held accountable to, you can just sort of cut out. And I'm, I'm going to give you a free pass on those areas. Then I've got to tell you what we're going to talk about this morning might would be one of those three or four or five areas that I'll just say, God, in this whole matter, you know, or forgiving others when it's not easy to forgive. God, I'd like to be let off the hook from that. But God doesn't give us that opportunity. And there's a lot of areas in the, in the Bible that I find myself having to focus on because it's the areas that bring struggle into my own life. And, and I don't want to be a person that holds a grudge. I don't want to see the bitterness and resentment to grow up in my life. I've been tested in that like you have. And I not only do not want it for your life, for my life, I don't want that for your life either. 
Because for some of you that are seated right here, right now, the thing that is holding you back from growing, it is not whether or not you love God, you love God. It is not whether or not you're coming to church, you're coming to church. It is not whether you love the scriptures and you talk to God in prayer. It is not that. It is the fact that there is a root of bitterness and there's a resentment. You're holding on to a grudge. And that very thing is keeping you from growing in the way that God actually wants you to grow. And we need to talk about this. And just before we do, I want to share with you something that Anne Lamont uh, said many years ago, and perhaps you've heard it since this time, but she said, not forgiving somebody, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. So you drink the rat poison and you're standing around waiting for the rat to die and you're the one that has drank the poison. And the reality is that makes no sense at all. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Why would an indescribably good God ask that we do something that is so extremely difficult, like offer forgiveness and renounce bitterness and release a grudge? And there's this part of us that wants to say, no thanks, God, that's just way too hard. You know, what they did to me was so wrong. The betrayal, the hurt, the abuse, what they did to me was so dastardly, was so wrong. Surely I ought to be able to hold on to this. And you hold on to it if you choose to do that to your own peril. Because it's not going to destroy them, but it will destroy you. I like the story, humorous little story. I ran across this some time ago. Uh, it says, it goes like this. The subject of the Sunday sermon was this. It was forgive your enemies. After a lengthy service that went on and a sermon that went on and on and on. And, and, and I don't think that a lengthy sermon will go on and on here today. I'm looking at my clock even now. The preacher asked the congregation how many were willing to forgive their enemies after he asked the question, about half of the congregation raised their hand, about 50%. Not satisfied, he pleaded with the congregation for another 20 minutes. He just keeps going on and on and repeated his question. This received a response this time of about 80%, still unsatisfied. He lectured for 15 more minutes and repeated his questions. So now with thoughts of Sunday lunch being delayed, uh, all responded now except one old gentleman in the back of the church. And, and the pastor just sort of called him out right there in front of everybody. He said, Mr. Jones, I noticed that you're not raising your hand, that you're willing to forgive your enemies. Are you not willing to forgive your enemies? And Mr. Jones just sort of spoke back. He's, well, I've been addressed publicly, so I'll speak back publicly. And Mr. Jones says back to his preacher, he said, well, I don't have any enemies. Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones, that is very unusual. How old are you? He said, well, I'm 86 years of age. Now the preacher starts sounding a little bit like an attorney. He says, Mr. Jones, please tell the congregation how a man can live to be 86 years of age and not have a single enemy in the world, to which Mr. Jones said, well, I'll tell you how. I outlive them all. <laughs> and how many of you know it is much easier to outlive your enemies than to forgive your enemies. However, God, who infinitely loves us and who cares about us and always has our best interests in mind, has some valid reasons for him to emphasize to us from his word how important that it is that we not allow a root of bitterness to spring up, that we not hold on to a grudge, that we not become resentful, resentment-filled people who are looking to retaliate and to pay back. So I want to just take a couple of moments, it will not take me very long, to talk to you and me for just a moment about how, uh, how you and I are effective when we hold on to a grudge. What will it do to me? 
And I want to illustrate this for just a few moments by saying, let's use your imagination. Let's say uh, that there's somebody that you trust a whole lot and you've got a lot of confidence in. Maybe you've built an emerging relationship with, and this person hurts you. And they not only hurt you, they hurt you in some major way. And if that happens, then most likely what you begin to do is you begin to have these kind of thoughts and, and you're like, you know what? Uh, they hurt me that way, and uh, th what they did, their betrayal, their hurt, the pain that they caused me is so severe that here's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay away from them. I, I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to have a conversation with them. I don't want to see them. And if you're not careful, it's at that point that a little seed of bitterness or resentment begins to sprout in your life. And initially, it feels pretty good because you feel like, well, you know what? Uh, you know, I'm not able to do what I want to do, but it just feels good to carry that, that sense of, you know, uh, revenge or, or this grudge. And I've just, and we think about it and we have these feelings and, and these emotions about it. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had something like this happen to you? Let's say that, that somebody hurt you and, and you've not had a conversation with them in actuality, but you had, you've had a conversation with them in, in your mind. And, and, you know, because you're angry with them and because you're frustrated with them and because they've hurt you or done something wrong, you start thinking about, you know what, if I were to talk to them right now, here's what I would say. And you start imagining in your mind the things that you would say. And the more you imagine the things that you would say, the more you imagine the things that they would say in return. And then if they said that, then I, and again, all this is going on in your brain. And I would say this, and they'd probably say that. And, and you just get yourself worked up in a lather over a conversation that's just taking place between your ears. It's like, you know what? And you just worked yourself up. And again, you know, that may feel pretty good initially to have that little seed of bitterness or resentment. But given time, this one small seed grows and becomes a destructive vine that begins to choke out so many things in your life that God wants you to know, like God's peace and God's joy. But you don't have God's peace and your joy, uh, joy anymore because it seems that your life is always in turmoil because you've got this bitterness, you've got this, this angst, this resentment going on in your life. And listen, friends, you can't hold on to a grudge. You can't be a bitter person. You can't hold on to resentment and just be a peaceful and joyful person. And that seed now becomes this destructive vine and it starts choking that out. And it starts choking out your capacity to be able to love and trust other people. And you just have this notion of thinking that says, you know what? I trust trusted them and they hurt me. I trusted them and they betrayed me. I'm never going to trust anybody like that again. I'm never going to allow myself to get close to anybody. And you begin to isolate yourself and insulate yourself from other people. And in fact, sometimes you'll even do it with the people that can help you to work through this challenging time in your life. Or maybe you start choking off your feeling of being vitally connected with God and, and you're just saying, you know what? This doesn't seem like the abundant life that the Bible says is available to me. I'm just miserable and, and you've got all this turmoil going on in your life. I want you to see what Paul said to some believers living in a place called Ephesians or Ephesus. He's writing to Ephesian believers, and this is out of chapter 4. He says, this is what you need to do, and this is for us as well, friends, not just for those living in Ephesus. He said, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger. Get rid of harsh words and slander as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, this is what you ought to do. Be kind to each other. Be tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. And here's the reality about bitterness. It's like a burning match. 
Bitterness is like a burning match. It only burns the one who holds it. And if at some point you and I don't release that, the only person that's going to be hurt by that long term is going to be the person that is holding the match. Years ago, I picked up a book, and in this book, I read this paragraph. It says, God commands us to forgive because it is the best way to live. He commands it because the only other way is to remain a prisoner of the hurt for as long as I live. God commands forgiving, this writer says, because to refuse to forgive means I allow the one who hurt me to keep me chained to a prison of bitterness and resentment year after year. No human beings, this is a very important statement, no human beings are more miserable than the unforgiving. No human beings are more miserable than the ones who choose not to forgive. You see, friend, God loves you so much, so much so that he doesn't want to stand back and see you destroy yourself with the toxin of bitterness and unforgiveness. So you've got to say, you know what, God? I'm not going to even allow that seed to begin to sprout in my life. And, and I'm just not going to, you know, sometimes when people hurt us, there's that pain. And because you feel pain, it doesn't mean that you've got unforgiveness. It just hurts. And sometimes there's grief in our life. And sometimes we get temporarily angry over something. Now, does that mean that we're not forgiving that person? No, it just means we've got to process through very real human emotions like our anger or our frustration or our grief or our pain. And, and that's normal. That happens. And, and that's okay. What you do not want to happen, though, is for that little seed to begin to grow and grow and starts choking off all the good things that God wants to have happening in your life. And one day you just look around and you say, you know, what's wrong? I love God. I go to church. I read my Bible. I have my devotions. I'm doing, I'm tithing. I'm in a small group. I'm serving in a ministry, but I'm not growing. And the reason you're not growing is because you're holding on to a grudge and you just can't do that. And I don't want that for your life because I want you to keep growing. I want you to keep maturing in the faith. And a grudge will keep us from doing that. So it begs the question. We need to address it. And then, all right, well, you know, they hurt me. Therefore, I've got to hurt them back. They did something wrong to me, so I'm going to retaliate. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do something, and I'm going to get them back because if I don't do it, nobody's going to do it. And I cannot stand back for the life of me and allow them to go scot-free. And we forget what the Bible says. We forget that the Bible says that at the end of time, that God is going to make wrong things right, and God is going to hand out judgment at the end of time. And a lot of times, can I be honest with you, God doesn't wait until the end of time to actually execute his judgment. Sometimes God does that here and now. But we're not thinking about that in the heat of the moment. We're like, you know what? I've got to repay. I've got to retaliate. I'm going to get back at them, whatever it takes. And people imagine ways of getting back at other people. And that's no way for a serious Christ-minded follower to live. You don't want to do that. And so you say, well, then what do I do? Then, Then you trust God to handle his business. The Bible says this, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Listen, God does not need you and me to do God's work. God is able to do his own work. And he doesn't need you and I to retaliate. So, you know what? What do we do? How do we, how do we trust God to do this? At times we may feel, well, you know, I want to trust God to make wrong things right. But, you know, God is so preoccupied with evil and wrongdoing on a global scale that isolated pockets of it are going to go unnoticed and accounts are not going to be settled. But again, they will. You know what, friend? I was thinking about this not too long ago as it relates to God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's kindness. I believe in it. I talk about it. 
I have tremendous gratitude for it. Yet I also know that this does not diminish the equal commitment that God has to bring judgment and to set right things wrong uh, or wrong things right and to deal justly with evil. I want you to lean in for just a moment and track with me on this. The Bible tells of a time in the future when God will judge evil with ultimate finality. Books are going to be opened and accounts are going to be settled. I want you to take a look at one verse. This is out of Ezekiel 25. It's actually a prophecy against the the Philistines. This is Ezekiel uh, 25, 17. And this is what God says. God says, I will punish them severely and take full revenge on them. They will feel my anger. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And so we know that God is going to take and you know, the bad that has happened to us, maybe you're a person that you came out of a background, maybe even out of a family situation or out of a relationship that was so bad and so dark and so wrong. You're like, you know what? If I don't do something, they're just going to walk scot-free from that. Therefore, I must be the one to read. No, that's not, that's not our job. Our job is not to get revenge. Our, God, our job is not to retaliate. Think about it as God will make wrong things right again. God will settle accounts, but God's righteous judgment is not just reserved for a time that has been set in the future. According to the Bible, God is presently at work, even now, dealing with evil in the world. How do we know that? Just look at this verse, or two verses, actually. This is Romans. Romans chapter 1, 18 and 19 says this, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. And see, friends, here's what I want to free you up from, to feel, you know, the seed beginning to take some formation in our life and just say, you know what? I'm not going to allow that to happen. I'm not going to cut myself off from growth. I'm not going to lose out on peace and joy, the abundant life that God has for me. I'm not going to miss out on growing spiritually because I'm holding on to this. And then we start, uh, you know, wrestling with this in our mind. But if I don't do something, what's going to happen? And again, you've got to turn that over to God. But Pastor Jeff, you don't understand what they did to me was so bad. You've got to turn it over to God. What they did to me was so wrong. You've got to turn that over to God. What they did, I've got to get back at it. No, you've got to release it to God. You've got to release it to God. God is big enough to handle it. God is big enough to take care of it. And listen, you may not see it the way. See, the problem is a lot of times we don't believe that God won't make right things wrong, uh, wrong things right and settle accounts. Here's the problem that we have. God has not yet done it on our timetable. When do we want God to make, you know, things right? When do we want God to punish evil and wrongdoing? You know, when we want God to do it, we want God to do it yesterday. Yesterday. So in the time that we have remaining, we don't have much time. I just want to very practically answer some questions that come up about this. Again, because I don't want you to be stymied in your faith. I don't want the hurt that somebody has caused you to keep you from growing in God. I don't want the pain that somebody has caused you to keep you from knowing the peace and the joy that God wants you to have in your life. So I want to just pose real quickly some questions and we're done. Here's question number one. What kind of numerical limit should be placed on forgiveness? What kind of, how often should we forgive? And, and Peter, the apostle Peter actually has a conversation with Jesus about this. And we see this in Matthew 18. I want you to look at what Jesus has to say about it. It's quite interesting. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Somebody, God, they just keep sinning. How often should I forgive them? And then he's feeling pretty good about this seven times. He says it proudly, like, you know what? Seven times. 
Like Jesus is going to be oppressed. Lord, should I forgive him seven times? Now look at how Jesus responds. No, not seven times Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. That's how much I want you to forgive people. Do you think Peter was shocked by that? I think he was absolutely shocked because he's feeling pretty good about the seven times. God, they just keep hurting me. Seven, you know, I'm going to forgive them seven times. Jesus, aren't you impressed with that? And Jesus looks at Peter and said, no, Peter, not seven times. How about this? Seventy times seven. And Peter says, really? Seventy times seven. You take the zero. Seven times seven is 49. 40. 490 times? Are you kidding me? You think that's what he did? No, I think he got the message that forgiveness was to become second nature, that he was to forgive endlessly. Well, it, it brings up another question. Well, what if the person that has hurt us, what if the person that, the person that has caused us pain does not ask for forgiveness? Are we obligated to forgive them? You know, well, let me just ask you this question. I mean, because they don't ask for forgiveness, are you going to say, you know what, I, I'm just, I'm just going to wait and uh, I'm going to hold on to extending forgiveness to them until they come and ask for my forgiveness. Now, I, I want to enlighten you in this regard. If that is your mentality, well, I'm just going to wait. I'll forgive them, but I'm not going to forgive them until they come and ask for my forgiveness. Then guess what's going to happen? For a lot of people, you're never going to forgive them because they're never going to ask you to forgive them. So if you just say, that's like saying, well, you know what? I, I'm just going to keep allowing myself to go through all this misery because they won't ask me to forgive them. That doesn't make any sense at all. Can I give you another caveat attached to this, I believe? Sometimes, it's not often, but sometimes people hurt you and they don't even know that they've hurt you. And because they don't even know, and, and maybe they didn't even mean to hurt you. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever had somebody that you thought, you know, intended to hurt you, and then when you had, and this is constructive, this can be positive if you've worked it out in your spirit and you're not all amped up about it and you just have a, you know, a honest, civil conversation. You go back to them and you explain to them how that they hurt you. And once you hear, you, co you come to the start realization that they weren't intended to hurt you at all. But just the way it sort of happened, the dynamics of the way it happened and the language that was used. And you said, well, you know what? I, I miss that. And sometimes people will. They hurt you, and they don't even realize that they hurt you, and you may not, not even know until you have a conversation with them about it. And if they don't know that they've hurt you, they're never going to come and ask you to forgive them. So do you just keep holding on to that? Are you willing to allow bitterness and unforgiveness to poison you simply because somebody does not say, I'm sorry? Here's another question. If I forgive someone, does it mean that I have to trust them again? And you know what? Quite honestly, and I don't have a lot of time to talk this out, but I'll just, I'll just say, no, not always. And the reason I say that is forgiveness does not mean excusing. Forgiveness is not validating something that somebody did wrong to you. Forgiveness is not, and this happens all the time, and it's so sad and so tragic that somebody is hurt by somebody else, and they make excuses for the person that just keeps on hurting them. That, that is not forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean excusing. Forgiveness is not tolerating bad behavior. Forgiveness is not even forgetting. Some of you say, well, you know what? Obviously, I have not forgiven them because I haven't, forget, I haven't forgotten what they've done to me. There are people that have hurt me in my life that I've forgiven a long time ago, but I haven't forgotten them. I haven't forgotten what they've done to me. It's not the same. And forgiveness sometimes even means 
that, that you're not even reconciled to the person. Because to go back into that same toxicity and to go back into that same environment and to go back into that same problem and to have that same challenge to go back into that same darkness all over again. Forgiveness does not always mean reconciling. Does that make sense to anybody here? So one final question and we're done. Now it's pointing back toward us. Do I feel gratitude for the forgiveness that God has extended to me? Because I think that's, even though I left that for last, I think that's really where it starts. Because when I stop and I think about all that I've been forgiven of, and I, and I start saying, well, you know, Jesus, when I really think about it, I've done far worse to cause you pain than what anybody else has ever done to me. And you forgave me. Now please help me to be able to forgive others. Look at these verses on the screen before we're done. But when you're praying, Jesus said, you first forgive anyone you're holding. Look at it. Here it is. Holding a grudge, grudge against you. forgive them so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. So Jesus is saying, you know what? The Father really wants to forgive you of your sins, but he wants you to forgive those who have sinned against you, who have wronged you, who have caused you pain. See, friends, this one can trip up a lot of Christians that are really, really good people. Person says, you know what? Uh, I don't have all these addictions. I, I don't have all these problems. This is not my life. I'm not, but, and so not caught up in anything like that. But the one thing that holds them back is a grudge, is some resentment, is some bitterness. And God just wants to free you up from that. He just wants that seed that's now grown into a destroying vine to just be so ripped out of your life that you enjoy the life that God really wants you to have. Would you stand with me this morning for a closing prayer? Maybe while I've been talking this morning, you've been thinking about somebody that has done you wrong. Maybe it's somebody right in your own family. Maybe it's somebody that's betrayed you. Maybe it's a boss, a former boss. Maybe it's a former spouse. Maybe it's a friend that you so trusted that did you so wrong. I don't know who it is. And I don't know what they've done. I'm sorry it's happened. I really, really am sorry it's happened. But I don't want that holding on to your life. You got to let it go. It will destroy you. Remember, bitterness is like a match. It only burns the one who holds it. So you've got to drop it. You've got to release it. And you let a, you've got to let God heal you and restore that peace and that joy again so that you feel vibrant in your relationship with God, so that you look at your life and you know that you're growing. Father, that's what we want. That's what we need to not be chained, to not have this root of bitterness that has sprung up into this, this destroying vine that's just choking out life and peace and joy and contentment from us. God, those people that have hurt us, those people that have abused us, those people that have done us wrong, that we have not yet forgiven, we choose to forgive them even now. We're going to release a grudge. God, we're going to be like Joseph, who had every right to get back and retaliate and to settle the score, but he chose not to, and he loved instead. Help us to be those kind of people we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. I love you, everybody. Have an awesome week. I'll see you right back here next Sunday.